welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesequepan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepamulu. And Joe, today's mm-hmm. text, which is The Knife of Never Letting Go slash Chaos Walking, I didn't do a territorial acknowledgement today because it's a sci fi takes place on another planet story. Mm-hmm. And normally in this case, we would talk about the location where it was shot, but it was like shot one place and then reshoots were done somewhere else. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of a mess production wise. It is. But putting all that aside, I actually thought, you know, in our normal territorial acknowledgement space, it will be worth mentioning that this, this is a book and a film that Mm -hmm. is about settler colonialism. Uh Uh-huh that does not want to engage with the idea of settler colonialism in any meaningful way. And I found that deeply off-putting about both the book and the film. So we're going to talk more about the plot and everything, obviously, but the the Cole's notes is that these folks have settled a new planet. And Mm -hmm. there is only very minor passing reference to the obviously sort of sentient humanoid species that existed on this planet when they arrived and have mm-hmm. largely been pushed to the margins or yep. destroyed. Yep. And there's like maybe two paragraphs in the whole book that actually ask any kind of ethical moral questions about that. Otherwise, it's just entirely about the adventure of settling. And sure. I was so grossed out by <laughs> Yeah, I do feel like we should acknowledge that this is the first in a trilogy of books. The films will absolutely not be made into a franchise because this movie tanked badly. Yes. So I can't help but wonder if had we continued reading the second and third entry, we might have gotten a little bit more information about the spackle. But as a standalone book... We're going to have lots of thoughts to talk about whether this even (laughs) is a standalone book. But as a first entry, at least, it's doing very little. Maybe it's laying the groundwork for something in the future. We don't know. We're probably never going to find out because newsflash, we did not enjoy this book. We did not enjoy this movie. But I promise you, I will never know. I will never know what's in those other books. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because it just, it's not meaningfully engaging with it. And I feel like even if it had to just acknowledge that, like, this isn't the story we're interested in telling, but instead it's like, no, we purposely, like, Patrick Ness purposely introduces this concept and then is like, but also let me tell you this other story, because I don't care about this one. I have to wonder if the author's subject position has something to do with this, you know, like, mm-hmm. Patrick Ness is a British writer living in the UK what was at one point sort of the seat and heartbeat of the settler colonial project. Mm -hmm. I think that in many ways, this is something that a writer like Patrick Ness is utterly blind to. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I I use the word blind there advisedly. Like I'm, I'm not using it in, um, 
in a pejorative sense, I don't think it's intentional. I really do believe that he probably doesn't see it. That for him, what's interesting is the story of settlement and and colonization and the new world and Mm -hmm. what it would be like to inhabit a new territory. And it just feels so uh, like something out of time. (laughs) to have to read a story and you know in fairness it was written in 2008 but that is not that long ago but to sit in 2022 you know in Kamloops I was sitting reading this at the pool while my kiddo was doing swimming lessons like a stone's throw from the residential school like the idea that you would tell this story and only care about the settlers to me is well, it's wild, and it's just one mm-hmm. of the many issues. So maybe I'll roll into the plot summary. Because sure. i got to tell you, Joe, this is making me nervous, because I feel like it's yet another fairly beloved series that we don't like. And we're going to have to sort of, like, navigate how to talk about it again. Because yeah. a lot of people do really love this series, and it has won many, many very important awards somehow. I will confess, I was very perplexed to find out that this has a very large fan base. And yeah, I mean, our track record increasingly with these books, uh, especially because oftentimes they get a one and done film adaptation that confuses the messaging, whether it's good or bad of the book, like the films often miss the mark, and then they don't go forward as a franchise. But it's odd to me that this one in particular would have struck a chord. So this actually reminds me a little bit of The Darkest Minds, which was the British book series about the kids who get like superpowers when they hit puberty and then they end up going from settlement to settlement and they're being chased. But it's a lot of like, and then we moved to this location and then we met people we couldn't trust and then we had to keep moving because we were being tracked. And then there's a big climactic confrontation and then we feed into the next book, but none of it really matters. Yeah, I'm going to do the plot summary. And then I want to talk about exactly what you're getting at, which is the incredibly repetitive structure of this book that Mm -hmm. made me bonkers. Okay. (laughs) So our protagonist is Todd Hewitt. He is the only boy left in Prentice Town, which is a settlement on the planet imaginatively known as New World. So creative. (laughs) So Todd is about to become 13. And when you turn 13 in Prentice Town, you become a man. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to us what that means. No. Except that you take on sort of men's responsibilities at that age. It's important to note that Todd is the only boy left in a community exclusively of men. He's been told his whole life that women and some of the men were killed in a war with the Spackle. The Spackle are the alien species that live on the island. And he's also been told that the Spackle released a germ that caused all the men, it makes their thoughts audible to the people around them. It's called noise. Mm -hmm. So basically the idea is like, there was this war, there was germ warfare, all the women were killed between the germ and the murdering. Many Mm -hmm. of the men were brutally killed as well. And now we have this thing called noise. Also, animals' thoughts can be heard. So men and animals. It's interesting, Joe. Mm-hmm. They never talk about whether, like, ostensibly there are still female animals, right? Yes, but I, never f- I believe it's clarified that you can't hear female thoughts of any kind, regardless of species. Interesting, I don't remember that, but I skimmed many parts of this. Okay, I was going to so- say, you <laughs> barreled through this. <laughs> it was so long! Can we talk about that? It's a 500-page book. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
So at the beginning of the book, um, Todd and his dog are out adventuring and they find this patch of what they think of as silence. Basically, there's like, they can't hear something there. And Mm -hmm. he wants to try to explain it to the the two men who are raising him, Ben and Cillian. His own parents have been killed. Anyway, it turns out it's a girl who has come from uh, the settlement ship. She's coming to explore potential for an additional colony of many, many more people, like thousands right. and thousands of people. Yes. And so begins the adventure of Todd's parents sending him away before he can become a man in the context of what that means in this community, which uh, is horrible. We find out later you have to kill someone to become a man. So that's mm-hmm. where all the people are going. Nobody was killed by germs. All the women are murdered because nobody can hear their thoughts. And the men who fought about it are murdered by boys becoming men. It's really gross. Super, yeah. super gross. It's a lot of fragile masculinity, toxic masculinity. And uh, I think one of the struggles as an adult reader of this is that it's very obvious that something nefarious is going on mm-hmm. and that Todd is being lied to. But because he's 12 and he's been shielded in part for his own good, because as the last person, he's kind of the, the last uh, cog in the machine before the mayor of Prentice Town will start a grand scale planetary invasion where he and this army of men are going to march and take over as much of the land as they possibly can. So Todd has been protected his whole life, but also he's a bit of a dum-dum who's lost in the dark. And as a result, you're just like, Todd, can you figure things out? Like he's sent <laughs> off packing with a journal that his mom prepared before she was killed. And she explains the whole thing in the book, but because Todd can't read and he refuses to ask Viola, the girl that he ends up discovering and going on this journey with, his own fragile masculinity prevents him from asking for help. So we don't find out what has happened until three quarters of the way through the book. I think the stuff that is most interesting here is the stuff related to gender. So like, to me, one of the most fascinating aspects is that the army grows with every settlement they destroy. And it's because Mm -hmm. they can always recruit more men who want to kill women. And Mm -hmm. like, ultimately, there is a never ending supply on this planet of men who want to kill women. And I find that aspect, like deeply, obviously threatening, but also a fascinating exploration that I wished had more time devoted to it. And maybe Mm -hmm. you get to it in the other books. I don't know. Anyway, all this to say, they navigate through a series of settlements with increasingly Uh, difficult scenarios. They're being chased sort of on two fronts by Mm -hmm. Aaron, the pastor, and by the mayor of Prentice Town. And they just keep showing up. Doesn't matter what happens. Get your face eaten by an alligator, whatever. (laughs) Just keep showing up again. Aaron is an impressive character because (laughs) he seemingly gets killed about four or five times over the course of the narrative. And he always comes back to the point where I just imagine he must be a zombie by the time they get to this final confrontation at the waterfall. Yes. In a final confrontation at the waterfall, basically, the the whole thing that underlies all of this is that Todd has never killed anyone, which is mm-hmm. what makes him not a man by Prentice right. Town standards. And it's important that, like, he can't kill Aaron in any of those almost dead scenarios. He mm-hmm. can't kill anything except that he manages to kill one of the spackle. And mm-hmm. 
he does it in this fit of sort of dominance and control and power, even though the Spackle is obviously terrified and not going to kill him. Right. And so there is this constant interplay between like, what does it mean to be a man? What Mm -hmm. does it mean to be able to protect the people around you? But also what is mercy and what is kindness? And ultimately, Viola is the one who kills Aaron so that Todd can stay sort of pure in this context. And then Mm -hmm. they get to Haven, which is where they're headed to. And Viola has been shot um which i checked she she lives in the second book so that's fine and then uh they go to haven they think they're going to get help they think they're going to be able to communicate with viola's ship because there's like thousands of people on their way to this horrible horrible planet um and unfortunately the mayor has already declared himself the president of the new world and taken over haven the end question mark cliffhanger 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 (laughs) cliffhanger no one cares (laughs) I knew that this was a series, but I didn't realize that it was going to end this abruptly. And actually, I did want to give a quick shout out because we actually had been referred to this text by a listener, Emily, and they talked about reading both the book and watching the film. They prefer the film because of the ending, also because they have a crush on Tom Holland. Fair. Same Emily. That's a very, very fair reason. Um, but yeah, they, they talk about how the book just has this awful ending and also awful writing. And I agree on both counts. <laughs> but it's so unsatisfying. Like, I'm thinking back to all of these dystopian YA texts that we've read. And a lot of them come in trilogies. A lot of them come in franchise setups, right? So it's not like we haven't been exposed to this before, but this felt the most egregious where this book honestly cannot stand on its own. And I found that so deeply unsatisfying. It didn't make me want to pick up the next book. It made me want to throw this book across the room. It's very frustrating to invest 500 pages in a story and not have any kind of satisfaction out of the ending. It doesn't mean we have to know how every plot ties up, but... Mm -hmm. You know, even if they had, even if the ending had been that they arrive in Haven and they are protected by the townspeople, but then the mayor Mm -hmm. arrives, like, so that at least we have, like, we get a moment's breath. Like, we don't get any, any kind of sense that these characters have any hope at all, Mm -mm. which is an interesting choice in a book that is ultimately about the importance of retaining hope in the Uh darkest of timelines, right? Like, that's weird, isn't it? And it feels like so much of the book feels cinematic, right? Like they're yeah. on the run. We've got very obvious set pieces that could be turned into action. And then we get to the end and it feels like such a whimper. Like I, I realize in hindsight that the conflict with Aaron is meant to be the climax of the book. And the stuff with the mayor in Haven is actually kind of like a denouement setting up the next story. You can't shoot someone in the gut in a denouement. <laughs> that should be <laughs> well, a rule. you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the repetitive nature of this book, <sighs> because that was my other big takeaway. And I found it similarly unsatisfying in the same way that Emily messaged us about It just feels so redundant after a while. I was like, what settlement are we in? I don't know that I care. Every time Aaron returns, Mm -hmm. I got 
angrier (laughs) and more (laughs) frustrated. Because, you know, ultimately, if like one of the central messages of the book is about like extending mercy and that we don't find our salvation through killing other people. Mm -hmm. That is totally lost because I desperately just wanted him to kill Aaron. So I didn't have to see Aaron's face anymore. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Cause it's not like, Oh no, Aaron's back. You're just like, get out of here with this. (laughs) How? What? No, stop. From the first one, right? Like the first time he comes back, he, his face is gone because a crocodile bit it off. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, this is a world with no medical technology. No, like, how does he keep coming back? And how many days does this book span? I don't know. I just... Oh, it, it's nearly a month, right? Because Todd is keeping track because he's still counting down to his 13th yeah. birthday. Yeah. I uh, do... I want to touch on another piece that I found underwhelming and mildly confusing but i feel like maybe i'm missing something you know you mentioned this idea that todd has to stay pure he can't kill someone and everything about the town's invasion like prenticeville's invasion of this world the mayor's big plan it all hinges on todd committing this murder and falling right like Part of the reason that Aaron is chasing him is because as the preacher, he's got a very gender specific point of view on mm. how women couldn't be trusted and so on. And I think that there's a, an interesting intersection between boys have to kill to become men at age 13 and women become these disposable items because they can't be trusted. They're, you know, eaves, all those other stuff. But, you know, the whole narrative is actually hinged on this idea that the army has to catch Todd, make him murder someone, and then they can activate their plan. But why? Like, it seemed to me that it was like, oh, it's all about the corruption of man. And it felt like Mm. it had religious overtones to it. Mm. But also Ness doesn't ever actually explore that. I think that ultimately the idea is that everything breaks loose because Todd escapes right so if everything Hmm. had gone according to plan todd would have murdered someone and they would have risen united to take on the next settlement and the next settlement and the next settlement very Mm -hmm. confident in the fact they will always find more men to join their side todd escaping is what throws that all into a mess right because Mm -hmm. if he would just read the journal Mm. he could have warned far branch for example like Mm -hmm. ah um but there's this idea that he's going to get out there and he's going to he's going to warn people. He's like going to change the whole plan. And I think that the problem is that those two narratives are running in tandem. Mm-hmm. So the preacher needs him to fall. The mayor right. just needs him to be dead and shut up. Right? Like those are two <laughs> okay. very different motivations, but they get right. conflated in the plot. Yeah. And I think ultimately like – Like so many of these very bloated dystopian stories, Mm -hmm. the author loses track of what is the most interesting. Like, Oh, for sure. What's the most interesting here, for me anyway, is is the gender politics and this notion of, like, masculinity and what it means to be a man and these poor spackle and, like, how sort of the corrupting power of basically two men in a community can have such an overwhelming, like, destructive force. Like, that's what's interesting. (laughs) Well, I'm going to gently push back to you. I think that's what's most interesting to a mid-30-somethings woman. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, like, this book is hugely popular, and it's not hugely popular, like, with 
me. Like, right. The, yes. the, because to me, the structure <laughs> is so facile that that we end up just in this constant cycle of escape, mm-hmm. find safety. Safety is punctured by somebody from Prentice Town. We escape. We find safety. The safety is punctured by somebody mm. from Prentice Town. And and you know yeah. that is a structure that is very popular in YA because it keeps you turning the pages. Mm-hmm. And I think that the problem is that I'm t- so tired of it. Like I just I couldn't even <laughs> There's so much walking in this book. Right? <laughs> like I couldn't even muster. Yeah, I couldn't even muster, like, curiosity about how Aaron kept staying alive. I was just mad because, yeah, yeah, ultimately, I find this to be a very cynical approach to storytelling because it's more about propelling you through the pages than it is about exploring any of the themes, which, okay, but then don't set up the themes in the first place, you know? Like, don't make me, don't make me care about these themes that you're not going to explore if it's just going to be about this escape cycle over and over again. Hmm. Yeah, I'll confess my interest in the book was primarily about the noise, right? Like, I yeah. thought that that was an incredibly interesting premise on which to hinge um, a narrative. You know, what if you couldn't shield your thoughts from other people? Like, how would that help or hinder crime or... Uh, even like adultery and anything to do with like secrets or truth telling. And I thought that that was really fascinating. And I don't mind the way that Ness writes the noise. You know, I, I think we get a lot of mileage out of certain things like the fact that Manchi Todd's dog can speak or like Mm -hmm. we can hear his thoughts. And I think there's a certain amount of like comedic relief that comes about because Todd has never interacted with a girl before and he's really terrible at shielding his thoughts, he ends up telling Viola way more than he ever plans to. And part of me is like, there could be a a really fun kind of rom-com premise Mm. to come out of this about a boy who meets a girl, but he can't shield his thoughts from her. And how do they make the relationship work? So, Which is what the film really plays on because they're so aged up, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just... At the end of the day, I was really disinterested with the actual narrative that Uh Ness ends up constructing around his clever premise. And I just, I wish that we could have gotten almost any other version of this story that still would have used that interesting idea, but done a different kind of story than what we always see in these dystopians. (laughs) There's not a lot of faith in the audience here which is always a sin I have a hard time forgiving in these Mm -hmm. kinds of books. It's almost like there's no confidence that the audience would stick around for that story that explores the noise in more depth or Mm -hmm. a story that explores masculinity in more depth, that the only thing the audience wants is the conflict, like the constant, constant, constant conflict. Well, I feel like you're also setting yourself up for a fail immediately by having this character be 12. Like, yes. I, I appreciate the idea that if he was any older, he might be too savvy. But I also don't entirely believe that if that is, in fact, the argument, because I think you could have told a more interesting story if this character had been 16 or 17 and been able to actually have the kind of interesting debates and arguments about some of those themes that you've raised. But because this is a 12 year old boy, he has to be so naive and so simplistic. And it's just... 
it's not enjoyable to read, I think even for teenagers, I would really have difficulty believing that they cared about the character so much as they cared about just the action. I think, too, one of the most frustrating things happening narratively is the fact that Todd has all the answers in his backpack <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and then the funny thing is just that when we get the the truth telling, it's because Ben comes back and just tells him the just whole story. The and then the next chapter is, oh, let's read Mom's journal. I was like, what are we doing? Okay, Why so did Ben need to survive then? And <laughs> like, I just, I did not understand this idea. There are a few things here that are very frustrating. So the first is that it doesn't seem to matter how almost dead Todd gets. Mm -hmm. He still can't just ask Viola to help him read the book, which is right. immensely frustrating over and over again. And, you know, weirdly, totally disconnected from the rest of the plot about toxic masculinity. Like, if they mm -hmm. if they connected it back thematically, I would have had more sympathy for that. Instead, it's just right. Todd being stubborn. And yes. yes, we have that moment where Ben comes back and finally divulges all, which was in the book the whole time. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're in an absolute race against time. They know how far away the army is. They know how long it's going to take them to get to Haven. They absolutely do not have a moment to spare. And at that moment, they Sit read the book. Sit down by the fireside. Let's... Like, what? <laughs> no. It just, you already it know everything that this book is going to tell you, and you don't have time. And now you're reading the book? Well, and it feels like what? Ness read some kind of plot structure for YA dummies. And, you know, <laughs> they said, oh, well, don't reveal the big secret until about three quarters of the way through the book to, you know, keep the stakes and the tension high. And it's just like, no, this doesn't no. make any kind of logical sense in this narrative. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about the spackle or should we move on to the film? I honestly... I don't think there's anything to say, which is so frustrating. Like, the Spackle are... First of all, I was so curious to see them, and the film disappointed me wildly with how they were oh, constructed. Yeah. But Because mm -hmm. the way they're described is really otherworldly and fascinating. Yes. And then it's a man in a suit. <laughs> and then it's just a man in a suit. Um, But I think they are a missed opportunity. I think that, you know, the Spackle end up just being a foil for Todd's slow, slow slow realization that not everything he has been told his whole life is true. Mm -hmm. And that means that there can't be any sort of larger conversation about, as I said off the top, about colonialism, about destruction, yeah. about what it means to settle. Like we can't have any of those conversations because the spackle literally just exist so that Todd can find out the spackle aren't evil. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, I mean, I, I feel like I say this a lot here, but this is just, to me, another missed opportunity. Yeah. No, it absolutely is. And, I, you know, I would be really curious to hear from folks, if you have read the subsequent books, do let us know, because we absolutely will never read the books. <laughs> but I'd, I'd be curious to know if this does end up ultimately paying off later. Like, is this a little nugget that we're meant to be interested in, and it becomes part of that larger story as we move forward? I have to believe so. But again, this doesn't work as a standalone book. It feels like we have introduced something that we're not actually interested in paying off or exploring in any depth or detail. Mm -hmm. Agreed 100%. Okay, let's talk about the movie. I guess. <laughs> Stop! Don't come any closer! It's a girl. Girl! Oh my gosh, girl. 
I'm sorry. No, Louis. Blonde hair. I've just never, never seen a girl before. Who are you? It's so loud here. We call it the noise. Happened to all the men on this planet. Every thought in our heads were on display. Where are all the women? They're dead. What is she thinking? Where the hell is her noise? It's strange to see everything you're thinking. You know, it's strange for me too, not knowing what's going on in your head. I mean, I don't know, you might not like my dog or you want to hit me over the head with a rock or something. I like your dog. He's stronger than he knows. You better watch your noise. Snake. 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 If those men catch you, they'll kill you. Get in the boat! If you want to protect the girls, you have to leave now. Keep you safe, safe. Keep you safe. Safe. With her power, there's no telling what he can do. I need that girl before she wants him. How many are coming? A hundred. Two hundred. Thousands. Okay. So, Chaos Walking is a film from 2021. It's kind of fun, Brenna, because you and I were tracking the development of this because we like to keep tabs on YA adaptations for mm-hmm. like, hey, maybe we should consider doing this in the future. So we have had our eye on this since 2019 because that's when the film was originally supposed to come out. That's when it went into test screenings and mm-hmm. then it failed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this has a very troubled production history. They've been trying to get this movie off the ground since 2011. It's gone through about six different screenwriters. It eventually gets screenplay credit to Patrick Ness. So the author came on at the end and helped to kind of bump it up as well as Christopher Ford. And it is directed by Doug Lyman, who knows this genre very well. He's the guy behind Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. So he has worked in action and science fiction a lot. I do think that he helps to smooth over some of the action sequences. This movie is a colossal mess. It's the messiest movie we have ever watched. (laughs) Well, I, okay, I wouldn't go that far, but it's definitely giving me the giver vibes. Oh, in that <laughs> it's like we took this book, which is considered a classic by many, fundamentally misunderstood the themes of said text, turned it into a completely different film that prioritizes things like whiz bang action. Yeah cast wholly inappropriate actors to play nearly all of the roles and then just yeah pumped up the action released it and then nobody shows up so this film cost 125 million dollars to make in part i think because the reshoots added at least 10 million dollars and took two extra years during the pandemic and then this sucker grossed 13 million dollars in north america Brenna. And the amazing thing is, oftentimes we see a disappointing return domestically, mm-hmm. and then, you know, international makes up for it. But international yeah. audiences did not want to no. see this any more than domestic audiences did. No. And that, again, to me, feels very similar of The Darkest Minds, where I think they thought they had something, even though it didn't come out quite right. I think they really thought that the large book fan base was going to save it. 
And then that didn't happen and nobody else cared. The fascinating thing to me, well, there's a few, but the screenwriters that this thing went through, it's mm-hmm. like, like Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman? <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine what that version of this movie looks like? I just can't believe it. I was looking at this list of people who tried to write this movie and couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the first thing you need to know when you sit down to watch this movie, if you have read the book, is that it's an entirely different story. Like, they've kept the characters' names, mm-hmm. but it's not... I mean, it's an adaptation on paper, but it's sort of weird to me because the story ends up so manifestly different mm-hmm. that I almost think Chaos Walking as a title being linked to Knife of Never Letting Go almost becomes like baggage because now it's it can't do that well. Like it can't mm-hmm. do that properly. No. And it can't be judged on its own merit because it's linked to this book not that i think it does anything particularly well on its own merit but like it's sort of the worst of both worlds here it's it's so far from the original intention of the story and yet it can't really be judged on its own so yeah i don't know it's a very strange little beast Mm -hmm. character wise to me everything is different from the first moment like we get Mm -hmm. a lot of narrative front loading we we find out a lot of the secrets of the town right mm-hmm. at the beginning like there there are fewer secrets of the town i guess because we find so out so much of it at the very beginning of the story and yep. like todd kills a horse in the first 10 minutes so like well he kills it by accident but well, well no. he he gets it into an accident and then he has to kill it yes the way he can kill like the way he can end a life even out of mercy is mm-hmm. so contrary to the way he thinks about sort of death and sacrifice and stuff in the book that like yeah. for me it was actually helpful because it it divorced the intention of the two characters really quick out of the gate but like mm-hmm. you also have aged up characters and so the whole thing is a love story from the first moment which also completely changes the intention of what's happening and i don't yeah. know that any of those things are bad necessarily like i just think that it's so different that it's I'm not sure different. how it benefits from being called chaos walking. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, from a marketing and advertising point of view, they thought that they had a winner because they wanted to link it back. But yeah, I do think that if you went into this blind, so Brian, my husband sat down and watched this with me because he likes Tom Holland, he likes Daisy mm-hmm. Ridley. So mm-hmm. we've got and two attractive doesn't? people. Who doesn't? Yeah. They're, they're very likable, charming actors. And, you know, I kept saying like, oh, this is different. Oh, that's not. Oh, okay. And he was like, just shh. because <laughs> he was actually fine with this movie. Yeah. Having not read the book and taking note of all of these extreme differences. He was like, yeah, it's not a good movie, but he was fine to have spent, you know, an hour and 50 minutes on it. And I right. really appreciated that insight because that's I important. spent the entire movie being horrendously bored <laughs> i was, I was just also like what really are we bored? doing why is this so long i kept having to um i kept realizing that i'd watched like 10 reels and so i'd have to like go back and watch rewatch 10 reels worth of movie because i i was really bored by it i think mm-hmm. if you already know the main beats of the story there's nothing here really like yeah. and the changes some of them are actually pretty interesting But I feel like, and you and I disagreed about this by text, I feel like the noise was always going to be hard to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Always going to be really hard to do. But I don't think that the film has clear rules for Mm. the noise and how it works. So an addition that the film makes that I actually think is really interesting is that the noise isn't just sound. 
it's also visual. So you can see people's thoughts, not just hear Mm -hmm. them, which is really interesting. And it gets used to interesting effect because you can basically like think a mirage at people if you think hard enough that Mm -hmm. they will think that that person is a real person and interact with them. But when that can happen, what the cost is to the person doing Mm -hmm. it, it all varies so dramatically depending on what the individual moment in the film needs that I found it, I found it added just this layer of complete incoherence to the plot. Although visually really cool. It is very inconsistent, yeah. And and even Brian took note of that. He was just like, ooh, I don't fully understand these rules. And maybe this would be a beneficial time to say, okay, what are the key distinctions between the two texts? So mm-hmm. in the film, we start off by knowing that this is a new world, this is a different planet, and we see uh, Viola's ship crashing. Yeah. So in the book, you don't actually know that we're on a different planet. You don't know if we're maybe in the future or in the past. Like, it's not until much later that you realize, oh, this is a completely different world from what we call Earth. Yeah. Here in the film, we literally open with that. Like, here's a different planet. Here's a ship crashing into it. And, uh, you know, the concept of noise is introduced as Viola's fellow astronauts go through it. And... It's manifest as a kind of rainbow-colored shimmer, but it's not always there. It only seems to come up. I I almost gathered that it's tied to emotionality. So, like, Mm. if you're feeling strong things, that's when the noise really becomes more audible and visible to other people. So then in town, so in Prentice Town, we're introduced to a very aged-up Todd, and there is no fall there is no purity for him so this town doesn't have any kind of interest in that they still killed all the women uh we don't really learn of any kind of tradition or anything like that but there's very obviously intent to take over so we still get an army we still get the mayor having full control but here the pastor isn't a leader. So the pastor's perspective right. and leadership, he's just seen as this crazy outlier. He's not seen as somebody who's being kind of taken seriously within the community. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, the mayor, so in the book, he has fuller control over his noise. Like it's something that they practice almost like a meditation. In the film, he seems to be able to control other people using his noise. And yeah, yeah, as we progress throughout the film, we realize that he and Ben both have the ability to make projections of their noise. And that really doesn't make any sense. It's a narrative (laughs) contrivance that the film uses when it needs to, to help characters escape or up the stakes in terms of like danger and stuff. Yeah. So the other interesting thing about the film is that when Viola is discovered, it's very much a two-pronged thing. It's that it's a girl, and that's threatening, but also this concern that she is going to alert the ship of 4,000 people who are in orbit and they're waiting to hear from her. So Mads Mikkelsen plays the mayor in this, and he basically is like, we need to shut her up so that she can't radio back. So that's where the chase and the activity is initiated from. And really, the gender piece comes strictly from Aaron, who is like, she's a harlot, we need to kill her, women are devils, blah, blah, blah. They don't have souls, that's why you can't hear their noise. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then, yeah, as you said, we get a bunch of the same characters. So we have Hildy, who is one of the women in another town, played by Cynthia Arrivo, and she uh, is willing to take pity on Todd and Viola when they make it to the new town. Um, it's really just a lot of chasing and yeah. a couple of decent action sequences. I will say, I think there's a moment where... They have to get into a boat and Viola says that she can't swim, but they're being chased by Aaron on horseback and his horse comes into the water after them and they end up going down a series of rapids. And I thought it was both exciting, mm -hmm. like well shot by Doug Lyman, and it's threatening because we've got the dog and the girl who can't swim and we're going over these rapids. So obviously you know that the boat has to be flipped over. We should also note that the dog dies in both, in both of these texts. texts. It's something that they decide to keep. Oh, this is an important moment. You know, the dog is very much a sidekick character for Todd. It's kind of like a way that keeps him human. Unfortunately, the dog and no animals talk in the film. I thought it was a really big missed opportunity, but I also knew that they weren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. But I found the book death of Manchi was so much more effective because oh you can God. hear the dog pleading for its life and being uncertain about oh what's going to happen. Don't, I'm going to cry on the podcast. <laughs> it, it's just, it's so upsetting, right? Like I actually so thought upsetting. it was one of the really emotional moments of the book and it's so badly done in the film. I yes. barely understood whether the dog's neck had been broken or it had been drowned because it's like, we obviously don't want to show it. Yeah, no, I didn't really understand that the dog was dead until Todd's noise told me that the dog was dead in the, mm -hmm. in the film. Part of the reason why Minchie is such an important character in the book, and he really is a character because he mm -hmm. can speak, right? Yes. Part of what makes him so important is that it's that moment when Todd really breaks from everything he knows in order mm -hmm. to save Viola. And, and yes. Viola's right. She says to him, like, if you had gone back for Menchi, Aaron would have killed you, and then Aaron would have killed Menchi. Like, that's mm -hmm. what would have happened. And she's right. Oh, 100%. But the fact that he saves Viola and- He chooses her. Yeah, and sacrifices Menchi in that moment. It's like a breaking with everything he knew before. Like, Menchi mm -hmm. was really his last connection to sort of Prentice Town. Yeah. And, and all of that. And so it's such an important moment in the book. Um, it's not. But Menchie's also not that important in the film. He's just no. this cute little dog who's sort of sometimes dog. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem with the film. Like, it's much more streamlined. It feels much more like, okay, these potential young lovers are on the run. They just have to stay one step ahead of this horde of men. And it's fine, right? Like, yeah. as I said, there's a couple of exciting action sequences it all ends up with her not trying to get to Haven. Like, we do name drop Haven, but we never get there. We just get to the original ship that delivered everyone to New World, and we're repairing antennae so that we can make communications with the ship in orbit. And we do end up having a confrontation with the mayor, as opposed to Aaron, and we end up killing him. So mm -hmm. we don't get to Haven. We don't have a cliffhanger seemingly the new colony will come down and they have set up shop at the end of the film so it does feel like a proper conclusion but it also feels very samey samey in a lot yeah. of ways i part of me is like what would the second movie i don't be? know i think <laughs> it would either have to be about aaron or it would be some kind of new conflict or escalation 
Yeah, I mean, it would it would have to be dramatically. I mean, I say this as somebody who hasn't read the second book, but judging just by the cliffhanger of the first book, it's going to mm-hmm. have to be a dramatic uh, shift away, which yes. I'm so interested in this desire to adapt, but not adapt, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it makes sense. We've talked on the show about things that are either unfilmable or wouldn't be effective in film and, and changes mm-hmm. that are made to to streamline and simplify really, you know, epic kind of stories and all those kinds of things. But here, the changes just seem like they wanted to tell a different story. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why they didn't. (laughs) I I feel like it's a more palatable version of the same story. Like, in a way, they're giving you and I the things that we would have liked to have seen in the book, right? Like, there is a bit more of an interest in gender. Like, there's, Mm. there's very specifically gendered threats to Viola in the film. And the noise is really more about the driving focus. It's not about whether or not Todd is going to become a man at 13 and all that kind of stuff, which Mm -hmm. to me was not very effectively done in the book. And it feels like, okay, we know how to build to a proper conclusion. Part of that challenge is that, yeah, like you've basically taken most of the things that made the book unique for better or worse and decided not to adapt it. Yeah, it, it's funny because when you were saying that, I was hearing the the language that IndieWire used in its review of the film. It said that despite a strange conceit and a few buried hints as to what a more courageous film might have done with it, mm. the movie version of the first Chaos Walking book is such a dull and ordinary thing that it can't help but get engulfed by the shadow of its own missed potential. Uh, and, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And Variety said, this movie wimps out, putting more effort into new world building than in the largely generic characters who populate it. And I found that an interesting thing too, because... In many ways, the film is setting us up for this kind of epic story of the new settlers to come, but we're never going to get that story. But because it's so interested in that and not in the actual people in the actual film we're watching, you can't help, I think, but be slightly dissatisfied by, by how that shakes out. Or at least I couldn't help it. Yeah, yeah. Um... I think one of the other challenges with the film is that really only two characters work, right? Like Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland are front and center. Like it really is their movie. They're in all of these scenes and virtually no one else matters. Like you can see Mads Mikkelsen, he's trying, but the character is a nothing. It's basically just a dude on horseback with a hat. Ben, too. Ben is trying so hard. Who's playing Ben? Who's that so actor? That's, that's Damien Bashir, and he's a great actor. But again, like, this character just doesn't get much to do. Like, even no. when when the mayor brings Ben out at the end and says, stop sending that transmission or I'm going to kill the only parent that you've ever really had, like your surrogate father, you're just like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> It's so true. It's so true. I feel like Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland are extremely charismatic, likable people. And Mm -hmm. I could probably watch them in anything. And the proof of it is this movie. Yeah. I mean, we get, I don't think their chemistry is super great as a romantic pairing. But watching Tom Holland as Todd try to be like, I hope she stays. Oh, didn't want her to hear that. Oh, crap. Oh, it's okay. very Don't. cute Tom Holland comedy moments, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, very, it, it's very Spider-Man-y, honestly. It's very, if Spider-Man could, like, if Spider-Man couldn't control his thoughts being hurt. Yeah, I, I think and when the film is working its best, that's what it's like. And <laughs> yeah. when it's 
trying to be no this is a distinct character and he's got interests and and drive and goals and motivations that are separate you're like "Mm, no just give me the spider-man stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah at the end of the day not only can i not see where this would have gone as a film franchise but i just don't think that there's enough interesting things here like we mentioned early on that it was shot in Quebec and then they did reshoots in Georgia, but then also apparently some parts of it were filmed in Scotland. I couldn't figure out where. Some sites in say Iceland. that there were also parts in Iceland and yeah. I couldn't figure out where either. No. But like, it's just, it's not even visually memorable. And I say that as somebody like, we had that conversation about wildhood about a month ago and we talked about how important the geography was in in setting a mood setting a tone mm. and here it just kind of feels like insert generic wilderness and i found that deeply disappointing like even up to the costume design this just looked like a generic western to me only they're firing phasers Yeah, I agree. And I actually, I will say that I think there's a fair amount of genre confusion in the book, too. Like, Mm -hmm. I was pretty far in before I figured out I was reading a (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah. And I think that that, uh, you're right, the costumes in particular, like, this could be happening anywhere at any Mm -hmm. time. And it's interesting that so many critics have been generous about the world building of the film. Yeah, because I don't find it all that compelling no i wonder if it's just they wanted to write something nice and the you know there are beautiful shots like Mm -hmm. the rapids are a good example there are lots of moments where like the landscape is exquisite but Mm -hmm. i don't know that that counts as world building if you don't actually know you're on another planet for large chunks of the the shooting you know Mm -hmm. and i still maintain that oh the spackles such a disappointment that was the one thing i was curious but pretty sure I was going to be annoyed with how they did the noise, Mm -hmm. but I was genuinely eager to see the spackle. Right. Because the way they're described in the book is like nothing I could imagine in my brain. So I was so excited. It's just a man in a black suit, Joe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks fine. Again, if you didn't know that it was meant to be something more spectacular, you'd be like, okay, there's a, a kind of weird alien here. That's cool. Yeah. But then it's also just gone from that narrative. Like, we have a tussle... Todd doesn't kill it in the film, and then it just leaves. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird little movie. It's a weird movie. Yeah. It, at the end of the day, this is very much a, the movie is too long, and it's not doing enough interesting things. The book is way too long, and it is repetitive, and frankly, not that well written in my yeah. estimation. I don't disagree it with just, you. It felt like a lot of weird choices and missed opportunities between these two texts. I'll be honest, this week was a chore. <laughs> it, it was i also don't think it was helped by us trying to cram this in in just a week like maybe yeah. if we could have taken our time this wouldn't have felt so egregious but yeah do not try to do this in a shorter amount of time i was texting joe the whole time i was reading it <laughs> and and i think joe woke up many early mornings to just me just swears just swears on the texts I wasn't even convinced you were going to finish the film in time because you were like, I'm watching it in 10 minutes. <laughs> I really was because I kept falling asleep and then I'd have to backtrack, which is why last night I was like, I'm just going to have to watch it. And I felt I kept picking up my phone and being like, no, and I'd have to like mm-hmm. go back over it. I just feel like it's interesting, right? Because in many ways, the film tries to give me exactly what I asked for, which is that yeah. all the way through the f- book, I'm just like, just tell each other the truth and ask for help. Mm -hmm. 
And the film is like, I got you all this exposition in the first 25 minutes. I'm giving you everything. And you're like, no, now it doesn't satisfy. <laughs> no, it's still not. You still didn't fix it, Patrick no. Ness, even writing your own film. Yep, it's true. It's very true. <sighs> all right. I think I'm done talking about this. Yeah, I was going to say, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Let's do some YA bingo with this. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. So obviously I'm going to give it some CGI. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to call this whole thing a road trip, even though they're walking. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, filmed in the territory now known as Canada. Yeah. For sure. We've got some queer secondary characters, even though their sexuality is never referenced. Ben and Cillian are clearly a couple. More so, I think, in the film. Like, in the book, really? I got the I impression so that the they book. were just sort of like people who had ended up living together because they were both good. And then in the film, I was like, kiss? Oh, that's interesting. I thought they were, I was going to say, I thought they were queerer in the book, but I don't, I, yeah, anyway. Um, I feel like, okay, this is weird, but I feel like the book does a lot of montaging, (laughs) which is sort of a weird thing to say with text, but we get like all these moments where one of the things that Viola does is she can pick up accents really quickly. So like, for example, when she's reading the journal, she's like reading it somehow in his dead mother's voice somehow. Mm It just, it felt very montage to me. And then it does get translated into that sort of weird, like, ghost mom who you yeah. see for a bit, which was confusing because it took me a minute to figure out that was supposed to be his mom. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, man. My favorite moment is in the climax when Todd is about to be killed and he projects an accusatory interaction with his mom in order to sort of confuse the mayor. And I was like, you're making up something and projecting it <laughs> you can that do doesn't that doesn't make any sense what <laughs> it made any sense oh dear um yeah keep going there's so so many come on there's obviously dead body dead family yes a lot of dead mm-hmm. a lot of dead people super dead aged up because they're hella old in this compared they're to their so 12 year old selves <laughs> they really are um did i say filmed in the territory now known as canada you did yeah okay well good um I don't know. Tell me what I'm missing. Okay. So I've got good friendships for the dog, especially oh, in the yeah. book. Okay. That's nice. I like that. I wasn't sure who you were going to fill in that blank with, but man, she gets it. Sure. Yeah. And then I've got a hollow romance in the film because blah. Yeah. Uh, we've got borrowed time because particularly in the book, they've only got the month until Todd turns 13. Oh, Yeah. And then I'm personally counting noise as like magic supernatural because it completely changes and alters the way that we tell the story. I buy it. Um, I'm going to give one for inclusion flip, although Uh I think it's misguided because we end up with the only black man in the film is the evil, crazy preacher as a result of the inclusion flip. Um, And Hildy is also played by a black woman. But the only black man in the film is Mm -hmm. a very threatening presence, which I feel like was a choice that they didn't have to make. Yeah, it definitely felt like I got the impression reading the book that it was like, welcome to new white world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The film is like, oh, we're making this movie in the late 2010s. So every other character will be a person of color. It's a good reminder, I think, in general, to casting directors, though, that it's important to to create those main roles and to, to maybe take a race-blind casting approach to those main roles for sure. But mm-hmm. I think it's also important to make sure your background characters are also diverse because mm-hmm. something that's really interesting is that 
in very few of the settlements do we see any people of color in like just the background roles. And I just, I was like, if this was a settlement from Earth, it would ostensibly have people of color in more than just one or two roles. So I don't know. I just Mm -hmm. think like that's my note to casting directors. Don't forget about the background players. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the final one that I have is uh, abuse, because I do think particularly in the book, the way that they treat the young boys is very abusive. It's super abusive. It's horrifying. Yeah. So that does give us a line uh, diagonally. Good work. You finally did something right, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, not gonna not gonna lie. Patrick Ness did not come off particularly well between these two texts. So No. Maybe I'd also be curious to hear if folks have read any of his other stuff or if they feel like we've maybe missed the point on what makes this book or this book series so compelling. Yes, I would be delighted to hear more about that because I know that people love this and it has been recommended to me on many occasions and I, I have yeah, I avoided it because I, I I remember back in the day checking the Does the Dog Die website. I mm. used to check it religiously before I read anything, before right. I started making this show with you. Because normally you, you warn me because yep. <laughs> you finish things before I do. So I, I avoided it for that reason. And I think we're clearly missing something. And I'd love to hear what listeners think that is. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Or on email, if you've got something longer, hkhspod at gmail.com. Joe, mm-hmm. where do they find you? I can be reached at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I am exclusively interested this week in Spackle fan fiction, so you can send that to <laughs> at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, where are we headed next, Joe? So, Brenna, we are going to travel back in time, but we're going to stay on Earth, and specifically, we're going to uh, talk about teenage sexuality. So, we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Richmond High. It's wild to me that I've never seen this. It's wild to me that you haven't either. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, if nothing else, on some sort of sanitized version on a TBS marathon, it should have come up. But anyway. Right, yeah. (laughs) And at the same time, we're prepping for the next book club, which is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. There's going to be a lot to talk about there, including the controversies surrounding Sherman Alexie himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one, I want to hear from folks. Like, this is a much more accessible text in terms of getting it than Cousins was last month. So uh, please do hit us up with your thoughts. And if you've read it, like, I know a lot of people had it assigned to them in school and stuff. Mm. So I would love to hear about those experiences. And particularly for those of you who are adult readers who might be revisiting it. Very curious about that, too. So please do get in touch with us. There we go. Okay. So, Joe, I'm never, ever going to find out what happened to these characters. (laughs) No, someone will tell us. Come on. (laughs) Please do. Please give us the cool notes. Uh, And until next time, folks, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. It actually reminded me quite a bit of... Um, oh, shoot. I said I was going to remember what it was. And now I've forgotten it. The one with the... The, the magic the, one. Yeah. Um, like, I can't even think of a descriptor to... Is it the the one where the countries are, are like the continents are like moving around like they're big 
cities, the city oh, no, robot the, one? Oh, that's the one I meant. The one where the kids have, like, X-Men powers, and they just go from settlement to settlement. I don't even remember that one. Seriously? I just messaged you. <laughs> I thought you meant the one where they were, the cities were robots. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's like, it's the darkest hours. No. The darkest. Did we read that? Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. I think, too, one of the most frustrating thing. Meh. I think, too, one of the most frustrating thing. Oh, my God. <clears throat> I can say words, Joe. Sure.